We're in a study on the book of John. We've been going through John, and we've, we're hitting uh, chapters 13 and following, and all that is is one long sermon, one long teaching session by Jesus. First, in 13 and 14, it's at, the, it's at the supper, the last supper, and he's teaching them. And all these things are happening, and it's just a, a very confusing time, I'm sure, for the disciples. They're seeing things happen that they didn't expect to see. They're, they're being told things. You know, Peter's being told, you're going to deny me, Peter. You know, Peter, he's like, no, right? And he says, you're going to deny me. And this is an incredibly confusing thing, just all kinds of stuff going on. And Jesus is teaching them. And he says, okay, let's go. And they start out, and they're walking now, probably across the Kidron Valley. They, uh, they go past an area that was known for its grapevines back then and today. And Jesus starts talking about the gardener and the vine and the, and the attachment of a, of, of a branch to the, the vine and how important that is and how important that is to understand. And he just begins teaching them. Then in, in chapter 15, somebody, he talks about how God loves you so much. And he's telling them, I choose you. I choose you. I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned this before, but I remember as a kid one time, you know, neighborhood kids. Back when neighborhood kids used to go out and play at the ball, ball field, the good old, oh, boy, I'm, I'm sounding old. Yeah. But anyways, whole bunch of kids out at this ball field, and we start, the two best players start picking, up, picking sides. They start choosing up sides. And, you know, I take you. Oh, I take him. I take you. I take him. I take him. I take him. And finally, there's one person left. Me. Me. The nerd, Right? There's one person left, and, uh, and, uh, and the one guy looks at the other and says, it's your turn to pick. And he goes, I don't want to pick. I don't want him. And he goes, you have to take him. It's your pick, and he's the last one. He goes, all right, Mosley, come on. So I'm coming over with him, you know, and he goes, go stand in right field. Just stand out there. Just stand out there. You know, and, and that... That whole sense of knowing, you know, that you're not wanted, you're not chosen, is an incredible thing. It, it, I, it, it's incredible. I'm 66 years old. I think I was seven at the time. I remember it vividly. How about that? I remember that vividly. I remember the feelings, the sense of nobody wants me. And then standing out in right field going, I hope a ball doesn't get hit to me or I hope it does, and I run, and I dive, and I make this incredible catch. No, I can't do that. I hope a ball doesn't get hit to me. You know, just, just that sense. And, and I want to tell you something. Jesus is telling them there, it's time to pick. I choose you first. And how does he choose all of us first? I don't know how he chooses all of us first. He's God. He can do those sort of things. But he says, I choose you. I want you. He's telling them this. He's telling them, you're connected to me on an intimate level. He's telling, just like we mentioned, he's telling them, you're not, I don't, I'm not calling you a servant. You're my friend. And I'm your friend. I'm not your master. I'm your friend. And I mean, I understand in some ways we are his servants. In some ways he is a master. But he's saying, I want you to know that this level, we're friends. This is a love relationship. And he's saying, but there's a, there's a drawback on that. And he teaches them, we talked about the last couple of weeks, the world is going to hate you because the world hates me. And if you're my close friend, it's, you're going to get pushback. We talked about that word persecution, how it can mean a whole level of things, just from disdain or dislike all the way to even killing someone. 
And so the persecution will be at many different levels. So you may, your life may not be threatened right now, but you may be in instances in, with your family, with friends, at work, and different things, where people are like, they, they just they don't like your stand. They don't like what you're about. You make them feel guilty. And he, then he tells them, but I'm going to send you this advocate, this paraclete, this one called alongside. And this advocate is going to testify to you about me. And now I want you, at the end of chapter 15, I want you to go and testify about me. And now we go into chapter 16. And I want to read this to you. Verses 1 through 11. All this, now just think about what we've been talking about. Now Jesus says, all of this that I've told you, I've told you this so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going. Now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where you're going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And so he, he's, he's giving them more teaching. He's filling out the teaching. He's talked about how they, they will have difficult times. But now he's getting very specific. This is very specific, especially to those 12. He says that you're going to be put out of the synagogues. You're, you're going to have your the people you know are going to be against you. And some of them will kill some of you and think that what they're doing is exactly what God wants them to do. And we have a perfect illustration of that in the book of Acts. I mean, it happens a number of times in the book of Acts. But one of the ringleaders of it was Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. He believed he was doing God's work by imprisoning Christians, and some of them were killed. And so Jesus wants to address something that's huge right here, I think. And that is the temptation to quit in verses 1 through 4. And I just kind of talked about it some. I just want you to, to see that. He, he knows that they're going to feel all, the, all this stuff is going to hit them. And there's going to be this temptation, right? We've, at some point in your life, you've probably experienced it, or you will, where things get really bad. And you just go, I just want to quit. I just want to give up. I want to throw in the towel. This is too hard. This is too much. I can't handle this. And Jesus is saying, that's going to come. Things are going to happen in your life. And he's warning his disciples. This is going to happen. This is not going to be an easy task. It's an amazing thing. Your own people will turn on you. I mean, we are, we are witnessing in this day the incredible scene of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ hating each other. It's an, it's, it's, it must it must break the heart of God. It just must kill him to see people who claim the name of Jesus behaving this way, thinking they're doing God's will. This is what religion does, just religion. 
It can make people think they're doing God a service when they do evil. And this is the story of the Apostle Paul. It's the story. It's his background. You, we understand. I mean, as you read the book of Acts, you see how when Paul became a Christian, nobody wanted to touch him. Nobody wanted to go near him. They thought it was a trap, right? It's a trap. They just thought that. This is too simple, right? Can you imagine? We're not falling for this. This is the oldest trick in the book. You want to become one of us? Sure you do. Sure you do. And God had to intervene. God had to bring Barnabas into the picture so that Paul had someone who would vouch for him. And he says, they do this, these people who hate, these people who do evil in the name of God. He says, they do not know God. They do not know God. And their time is coming. He says to the disciples, this time is coming. I have warned you. Don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. Be ready for this. You know, and, it, and, it, and we have to put this in context. I mean, these are people who they're looking at ultimately losing their lives. And, and it's interesting, in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of, the writer of the book of Hebrews kind of gently rebukes the readers. He says, you haven't suffered yet to the point of shedding of blood. Your persecution is not that bad. And so he, he kind of helps us put it in perspective, right? And, and I said that none of us are, are thinking that next week someone is going to look at us and say, because you're a Christian, I'm firing you. That, that does happen sometimes, but it's not that common. But there will be times where you will be looked down upon. You will be treated differently. People will look at you with disdain. And there might be times where it's physical. And I don't know. There may be people here who end up giving their lives for their faith. I don't know that. But it helps us to know it's coming. We have to keep it in perspective. Now, I want to do something. I talk about this all the time. I want to do something because I want us to stop and think. Let's think about what's going on here. Let's put ourselves into that culture, into that world, if we can. Uh, let me explain. Um, I used to, when I was a kid in, in, the, in the 60s, I mean, I was like one or two back then in the 60s. I used to watch a show that I loved. It's called Mission Impossible. I loved that show. I just watched it every week. And there was this group in the federal government, in, the, in our federal government, they were called the IMF and not the International Monetary Fund. They were the Impossible Mission Force. Like, that's in their name, which has got to be the coolest name in the world, right? We do the impossible all the time. Now, I know Tom Cruise has made whatever 12 movies about this, but the original TV series is way better. Way better. A lot of it's in black and white, but it's still way better, right? And this is what would happen. This guy, he would go and he would get this, this, this something in the mail and he would unwrap it and it would be a little tape player, right? And the tape would start running and it would say, you know, good morning, Mr. Phelps. And it would say, in, you know, in some country, Wallabooly, you know, there's this revolt going on, and uh, the dictator has a million-man army. We need you to go kill every one of them single-handedly, you know. The odds are a trillion to one, and you won't be able to do it. But if you do decide to accept it, we don't know who you are. We won't give any knowledge of you. And, uh, and then, um, then the tape, then the tape, and it's, it's just, this, this, and it says, this message will self-destruct in five seconds, right? And then, boosh, there it goes. Can you believe I put a picture of a burning tape player on, <laughs> on a sermon? 
And this is, this, this is what it was. I thought this was the coolest thing in the world because it's like, oh man, the whole thing just, and it just disappears just like that. Five seconds, it was gone. And uh, at least on my screen, it's gone. Um, which is probably the first time television actually showed government waste in action, right? I, I don't know, something like, it just, but it just would tell him, and this is what got me, I don't know. I'm, I was, I'm a little kid, right? I'm a little kid, I'm going, say no. Don't accept the mission. What would happen if he didn't accept the mission? You know, I'd be, I was so excited about that. Like, the, the screen would go blank, and we'd have like an hour of no TV or something. I didn't know what it would do. And he accepted every time. Every time he accepted this impossible mission. Because he knew he had a contract that ran right through. There was going to be one next week and the next. So he always accepted it was an impossible mission every time. Just impossible. All right. Jesus is setting his disciples out on an impossible mission. Let's think about this. He's telling them, go out into the world and testify. He's telling them people are going to think they're doing God a favor when they kill you. Now, who is he sending? Peasants. Fishermen. Right? the least, you know, the bottom of the barrel. Arguing, and and not only that, these are peasants and fishermen who just recently were arguing among themselves over who was more important and over getting power and privilege when Jesus became king. So they're, they're all about them. They have no standing in their society, and they have no standing in their country, and their country has no standing in the world. This is a backwater country in a corner of the world that no one cares about. And there's 12 people, and Jesus is saying, set the world on fire. Now, he tells them to do this with a message that is not that appealing to the world. Think about this. For the Jews, you're going to go to these Jewish people, and you're going to tell them that Yahweh, the creator of the universe the being who is so holy to them that they do not, even to this day, speak his name out loud. They will not speak that name out loud. It's too holy. He's too holy, right? So think of that. The ultimate glory of the universe, Yahweh, is going to become a penniless, transient preacher, became a penniless, transient preacher. Think how they would react to that. This penniless preacher is going to experience the worst death imaginable for a Jew. He's going to experience a death that they believed would disqualify him from being the Messiah. Deuteronomy tells us, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Cursed is the one who dies on a tree, on wood. And Jesus is crucified on a cross. And they're going to say, he's actually the deliverer of our nation. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And to these people, who cleanliness and uncleanliness were such a huge part of their daily life, they're going to go to them and say, you are unclean unless you accept him as your savior. Now, how well do you think that message is going to go over? That goes against everything they've been brought up to believe for their whole life. What they believed, what their parents believed, what their grandparents believed, and they can trace it back some of them all the way to David and beyond. Now, they're going to them. Second, they're going to the Greeks and the Romans. Now, the Greeks and the Romans, and I know I'm just kind of painting a broad brush, but for a lot of them, they believe truth and beauty and justice were these cosmic ideals. And they're going to say, no, truth has become a man. 
Not a glorious man, not a superman, but an executed criminal in a backwater country. Of all the religions vying for ascendancy, Christianity had a message that was almost designed to totally go go against their society, their cultural ideas, their social ideas, their religious ideas of the day. Now, how well is this going to go over? You know, this is something historians wrestle with to this day. How did this happen? Why would anyone listen to them? Why did it get off the ground? Why are we talking about it today? Some say, well, they had very dedicated, Jesus had very dedicated followers. Listen, every religion has dedicated followers. Every religion has sincere, good-hearted fanatics that are willing to die for their faith. That does not explain it. Plus, to top the whole thing off, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. At the greatest moment in the history of our movement, at the, like the, the battle of all battles, the leader's going to die. And he's going to leave them on their own. And he looks at him and says, go get them, tiger. Right? Change the world. Your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to do the impossible. And in this passage, we're going to see why the mission succeeded. And spoiler alert, here it is. Because the Holy Spirit was on the mission with the disciples. That's why it worked. That's why it still works, because there is a supernatural power behind it. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. And I want to read you this again, just, just, just because I, it's, I think it's important. But now I'm going to, going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where you're going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. And so to me, I look at that and I think, okay, this is it. Jesus, and what does this mean? What's going on here? Especially concerning, he's, he's giving them something that's incredible. The Bible teaches that salvation is an inward, transforming, supernatural reality. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a miracle. And I just want to say this. If you don't believe in miracles, I can testify to you through personal experience the biggest miracle, the transformation of a human heart. I can testify to you how God transformed my heart. And I know there's a whole bunch of people here that can do the same thing that can testify, and that is, that is the greatest miracle. That is the greatest miracle. Because you can force people to do things. You can force people to say things, but they don't change. They don't change, right? Just like the story of the little girl, you have to sit in the chair while we're having dinner. That's a family rule. She doesn't want to, they force her to. So as they're eating, she says, I'm sitting on the outside, sitting on the, on the outside. On the inside, I'm still standing, right? Because it's the heart that has to change. That's the key. That's the hard thing. And that's what God does. And so he's telling them that there, there is this one coming that has come for a reason. And it begins with the conviction of the human heart. You know, it, 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 
in verse, in verse 8, it says when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong. The, the word prove there is also the word for convict. Prove is not a bad translation, but it's the word for convict. It means to cross-examine, to show an error, to ask hard questions that show a flaw in your thinking. And the Spirit comes alongside. We've already been told he comes alongside to encourage. He comes alongside to comfort. He comes alongside to counsel. And now it sounds like he's coming alongside to attack. And he kind of is. How do you reconcile this? I think if you think about it, we all know this is true. When someone loves you or when you love someone and they start to do things that are self-destructive and they start getting involved in hurtful behavior, you get tough on them. Why? Because you love them. The only way we can be freed of guilt and shame and the power of evil in our life is to be convinced of the reality of the guilt and shame and power of evil in our life. We have to see it. And, and, and I'll tell you, when I first heard the gospel, it sounded crazy and unworkable. It sounded ridiculous. And that was the beginning of the work of the Spirit in my life. Because before I heard the gospel, I didn't even care. It wasn't on my radar. I knew some people who went to church, and I was like, if you like to do that, that's fine. I mean, good for you. Whatever works for you, you know, cool. But it means nothing to me. I have no concept of why you're going. Seems weird. And then something started happening. And it was the conviction of sin. In verses 8 and verses 9. And I want you to see this. This is very important because this... This comes first. Why? Because it makes me feel bad? Well, not exactly. I was thinking about this a few years ago. I, I, was, I, was, I was feeling sick, and it was hanging around, and I didn't want to go to the doctor. And my wife said, you need to go to the doctor. And she got a little forceful, and I did not want to go. To, I just kept thinking, it'll just go away. And what I didn't know is she brought in the Calvary. She called the kids right? And so I'm getting calls from my kids about going to the doctor. And all of my kids, are, I have five kids, they're each different. Our oldest, Derek, is a very logical kid. He's like, Dad, this doesn't make sense. You're sick, you go to the doctor. It's just normal. Get with the program, right? My daughter, Holly, the next one, she'd had some severe complications in her life, and she said, Dad, it can start small and it can turn huge. You know from me, you should know this, go to the doctor. My daughter, Reagan, is blunt. She's our nurse. She says, hey, stupid, go to the doctor. What are you, an idiot? And my son, Cody, is like, Dad, please go to the doctor. If you love me, you'll go to the doctor. And then Addie steps up to the plate, our youngest, you know, and she's just like, you need to go to the doctor. This is really ridiculous. She wraps all the arguments into one. And so I decided to go to the doctor. Now, why? Because what happened is they, it, they well, they wore me down is actually what happened, if I'm going to be honest about it. But have you ever tried to get someone to go to the doctor if they don't want to go to the doctor? It's hard. And why do you do it? Because you love them. Because you love them. Conviction of sin has to happen because it it teaches you to see your need of Jesus. Your ability to love the person who helps you is conditioned by your awareness of the need for help. Think about that. Your ability to love the person who helps you 
is conditioned by your awareness of the need for help. You have to be aware of the need for help. I mean, I, I was thinking about this. Let's say you go to the grocery store, right? And you pick up one of those little baskets and you put like three or four things into it and you're checking out. And as you start to walk away, somebody goes, oh, can I help you? It's like, what? It's not kind of an insult, right? What, what do you think? I can't walk to my car with a little basket? It's just, it's just a little bit of an insult. Let's say, though, you have a shopping cart. You got like eight or 10 things. Like, you know, when you go to the 12 or less line, you go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 13. But those two count as one. So I'm good, right? And you cheat. Yeah, I know you do. You're the ones that make me wait. So you got this little cart. You put a little few things in there, and you're walking. Somebody said, can I help you? Do you do, would you like some help? It's like, uh, that's nice, but... I'm good. I'm good. Okay, and so now, so now you got you're in a, you got two carts, and they're just jam full, and each one of them have a sticky wheel that makes them go hard left all the time, which is the normal cart at most grocery stores, right? So now you're pushing one, pulling the other, and it's like, oh, I'm going in a circle the whole time, and and you're working, and somebody goes, hey, can I help you? You're like, yes, please. <laughs> you're my savior. Just help me get this stuff to my car. See. Your awareness of need influences that. When you're aware of the need, then you love the person more. You respond differently. And so the consciousness of the need is so key. Jesus illustrates this perfectly when he's in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And when he comes in the house, Simon the Pharisee does not give him the regular greeting. He's supposed to give him a kiss on the cheek. He doesn't anoint him with oil. He's like, there's like four things that in that culture you do to a guest, and he doesn't do each one of them to Jesus. A very pers- purposeful snub and, and kind of a dig at Jesus. You think you're something. You're so beneath me. And a woman then, remember, she, she anoints him, she weeps, on him. Uh, she washes it with her tears. And he's like, if he knew that she was a sinner, he wouldn't let her get within six feet of it. It'd be like, COVID, don't come close to me. And Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, do you see this woman? When I came in your house, you gave me no water for my feet. What an insult. But she has washed my feet with her tears. You gave me no towel. She's dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she's been kissing my feet here, and he says, you did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Here it is, awareness of need. I tell you that her many sins are forgiven, so she showed great love. But the person who is forgiven only a little will only love a little. He says the awareness of need is what is key. This is so important for us. The early Christians their knowledge of their need, the knowledge that Christ died for them, gave them the courage to endure persecution. I, I want it to thrill me like it thrilled them. They realized the depth of their sin, and we often don't do that. We have ways of rationalizing and compartmentalizing and not feeling so guilty. But the awareness of need is the key. And I know, in a way, right now I'm kind of getting in your face, but I'm getting in my face also. And I don't like it. But I want you to see the conviction of sin. Conviction of sin makes the knowledge that Jesus died for you a power instead of a complex. Now, what do I mean by that? 
It means that we're not just feeling bad. You know, sometimes you lie, you feel bad about it. Or you cheat, you feel bad about it. You gossip, or you do whatever, you feel bad about it. You say, I gotta stop doing that. I've got to stop doing that, right? And that's true. But oftentimes what we do is we're just, we're just working on our own to try to stop doing things. We think that's what Christianity is. That Christianity is all about stop doing things. We miss the whole meaning when we fall into that. We fall into a complex, I'm a loser. And this, the, the, the conviction of sin makes the knowledge that Jesus died for you a power. It makes it a power instead of a complex. Because when we feel bad and we just start working on our own, what are we doing? We're just trying to be our own savior. We're trying to make ourselves more acceptable to ourselves and to those who we value opinion. And so we do things, you know, we, we, how we do our career or our physique or money or family or whatever. But all these things are a taskmaster in your life. They will never be satisfied, and they will always demand more. But what happens? Instead of a complex, it becomes a power. Why? Because God says, what is my will for you? My will is that you come before me, you confess your sins. They're gone. They're gone. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be ashamed of it anymore. It's gone. Now, you may deal with the human repercussions of your sin, right? But God says it's gone. I love this where he says, as far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? Infinity. My sin, your sins are gone. And he says, and they will be remembered no more. I don't know about you, but there's times where I've come to God. I said, God, here I am again. Here I am again. I've done it again. I'm so sorry. And God is going, this is the first time for me. I don't remember the other times. This is the first time. Your sins are forgiven. Now it becomes a power, not a complex. So he convicts of sin. The second thing is the conviction of righteousness. Now, verse 10, he says, I'm going to convict about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Now, how does going to the Father where you can see him no longer have anything to do with righteousness? Thank you for asking that question. The Bible is not just about forgiveness and peace with God and love and joy. We also are given the ability to confidently, think about this, confidently walk into the presence of God and look him directly in the eye, face to face. In the Old Testament, one of the words that's oftentimes used for, for prayer has this idea of face-to-face. And that's my favorite, favorite thing. So that God is in heaven. And there's, we sang about the cherubim and the seraphim and angels and other people who have gone on before us and they're all happy and joyful and everything. And I start praying. And God goes, hold it. You know, spit spot. Hold it. My son Bob is, is talking to me. And he gets face-to-face. Sometimes when my kids were little, I tried to make it a habit when they came to tell me something to get face-to-face with them, face-to-face. Not me up here looking down on you, little person, but face-to-face, a look of love. And God gets down and gets face-to-face with you as you pour out your heart, whatever it may be. It might be something, I mean, for parents, remember when your kids, sometimes your kids came so excited or so sad about something, and then you're trying not to laugh because it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. But you don't. Why? Because you love it. Sometimes you, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Are you kidding me? He stole your spider. 
Oh, that's sad. Wasn't your spider dead? Yes. That's a good thing. You know, whatever. What does God say? He says, Bob, oh, I'm so sorry. He stole your spider? It's love. This is what we have now. The conviction that we, this is what we have. Um, Romans 1.17, I get so excited about this. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This righteousness for us is a gift. You have been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about that. He lived the life none of us could live, and we get credit for it. We get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He took all the debt. God is saying, stop punishing yourself because you are worthy. And when we think this way and we trust him for it, we take our eyes off ourselves and we begin to look to Jesus. We begin to focus on Jesus. We've talked about that a little bit recently, how important that is in our lives, this focus that we have. Earlier in this series, we looked at the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus did not say to her, he did not say to her, I do not condemn you because this isn't sin. You know, sexual ethics is a matter of personal choice. No, he didn't say that. And he also, he didn't say, this is sin, so I condemn you. He didn't say that either. He calls it a sin. There's no blame shifting going on here, but he doesn't condemn. Why? Because he's looking forward to what is coming. He's basically saying to her, I will take the stones. I will take the punishment. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to this truth, then we see see the results of what is going on because, because Jesus is with the Father right now. I feel like I repeat myself so much, and I'm sorry if I do, but I think it's because it's important. We talked not long ago about 1 John 1, 9 and how that is so important for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And, and saying how in 1 John, he kind of paints this picture, this idea of a courtroom scene. And the accuser has come and has said, Bob said this, and that was sinful. He said this, and that was sinful. And I'm sitting there going, oh, man, yeah, he got that right. Yeah, that was sin. And in our advocate, Jesus Christ, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our advocate, Jesus Christ, I say, God, I I was wrong. That was wrong. I confess it. And it says that he's faithful and just. Why? Because he's in heaven, he now is our advocate before the Father, and he says, Father, I paid for that sin. It would be unjust to punish for that sin because it has been paid for. That's why he's faithful and just. He's just because he knows the law. He knows the justice. He has given us his righteousness. And so he says, you can't punish him for that. You know, and I, you know, I remember when somebody first told me this, I was like, Satan's going, curses, foiled again, you know, and off he goes, just something stupid. But it's that whole point. This happens. This is, he says, this is a picture. We've been given this righteousness as a gift. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. And they're gone. They're gone. The Holy Spirit shows us the righteousness we have in Christ, and it is life-changing. So you're looking at why did their message work? Why did the world become changed? Why is that the most incredible event in the history of the universe? And why did it spread so rapidly 
and, and wildly because the Holy Spirit was behind it and he convicted of sin and he convicted of righteousness and he convicted of judgment. It says, when he comes, he will prove to the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So it's judgment of the prince of this world that he's talking about. The devil has been condemned. His fate is sealed. And when we realize this, what happens? We know we're safe. I am safe. He has no hold on us. His accusations are rendered moot. This is freedom. This is real freedom. You are safe in the arms of a beautiful father. When I was in grad school, uh, we had a project that lasted um, almost a year. It was almost like having a minor uh, in grad school. And I, with a couple other people, our project was the African-American church in the early 1800s. What were, what were their strategies? What did they do? How, how did it spread so incredibly rapidly amongst the slaves who were being oppressed by their Christian masters? You know, how, how, did, how did Christianity catch on with those people? And then how did they evangelize and spread? And how did they teach with, when you have a, um, your, hardly anyone can read? Right? And so it was very interesting. One of the things they, they, they talk about is that they, they taught through music. They taught through music because music is a teaching tool. And so they taught through music, oftentimes through repetition of key things, and then taking Bible stories and making an application of it in music. And one of the ones I love is uh, there's an old spiritual called Rock My Soul in the Bosom of Abraham. And it's the story of Lazarus, the beggar who was diseased, and the landowner who ignored him. And then they both die. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. Now, if you remember when we talked about the Lord's Supper, it's this idea there seems to be some sort of a feast. And the guest of honor is on the right and left of the person who gives the feast, which is, which is Abraham. So that when you wanted to, if you're, you always leaned on your right side. And so if you wanted to talk, you'd lean into the person and talk to them. So you'd lean into their chest, into their bosom. Sounds almost wrong to say bosom, doesn't it? <laughs> Reminds me of whatever that show is. So why did I go there? Right in the middle of seriousness. So they would sing, rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. What is that saying? It's saying, I'm going to go to the bosom of Abraham. Now, when they're singing that, who's the landowner? Their owner is the landowner. And he's the one that's going to go, just give me a drop of water. It's an incredibly radical song when you start to realize that it was sung by slaves. And they're saying, we're Lazarus. You are the rich man. And, it was a, it was, it, and they taught that way. That's how they taught. It was, it's an amazing, it was an amazing study. I, I was thrilled to be a part of it. And so I always think of that when we say lean back in the arms of a beautiful father. It means I'm, I'm the guest of honor at a meal, and the father's giving it, and I just lean into him. Just lean into him. And so, conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, conviction of judgment. These are the things the Holy Spirit does, did then, and it turned the world upside down. 
and he is still doing it. What is interesting is the world right now is in, there's a lot of turmoil going on in this world. And missionaries have been talking in the last 15, 20 years about the incredible opportunities that have arisen because of this. There are story after story after story of people being converted in Muslim countries, coming to Christ. The fastest growing church, at least five years ago, the fastest growing church in the world was in Iran. In Iran. And it is just exploding. God, the Holy Spirit, is still doing this. He's still doing this. This is the mission impossible. And God is willing to use anyone God wants to use anyone who is willing to be a part of the mission. And so I would challenge you, you know, part of it, if this is coming to see that your best deeds will never make you suitable for the Father. They're just ways of keeping control of our life. I would challenge you to realize that Jesus has done it all. Putting our faith and trust in him is the beginning of this incredible, impossible adventure. And that means giving up control. And maybe we need to think about that. But also, I think, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be praying that the Spirit will work. Be praying, making that an active part of your life. God, that your Spirit will work and give me the eyes and the wisdom to see it. Because I want to be a part of that. And then, live as if you were really, truly loved. Because you are. Your salvation is complete. There is no uncertainty there. There was no unsettledness there. And one last thing. I know at different times in our lives, we struggle. We struggle maybe with situations we can struggle with doubts. I just want you to know if that's true in your life or you just have questions about some of this stuff, I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. It's, I love to talk. <laughs> so I would love to talk to you. And, and, and with things you may be struggling with, I believe there are answers for those things. Sometimes it may seem like they're not, but I believe there are answers for those struggles, answers for those doubts. And if it's just wanting to, more information or to, just to, to talk for a bit, I'll get a cup of coffee with you, you know, get together. I would love to do that because uh, that's what's important in this. All of this is, this is what's most important in our lives. So pray the Spirit work and live as if you were loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in the midst of talking about persecution and difficulties and pain and sorrow. You bring us joy that we are a part of something that is greater than ourselves. We are a part of something that is the greatest thing in the universe to be a part of. Help us to understand that. Lord, we struggle so much with understanding our sins we struggle so much with understanding what you've done for us. We struggle so much with understanding what to do with our lives. God, give us wisdom. Help us to see what the Spirit is doing and help us to follow closely after our Rabbi Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.